Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, February the 18th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana. And the studios today of News Talk. 99.5 FM WRNO. We are grateful to be hosted here and the opportunity to broadcast from this spot on this Friday. Happy Friday, one and all. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com here at the show. Everything you need to know about the program is right there, GuyBensonShow.com, including many ways to listen live. If you're not listening on one of our great affiliates or through our friends at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, it's all there at GuyBensonShow.com. Many options, including the podcast. So if you can't catch the full show, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, 2 to 5 Central every day, the podcast is there free of charge, on demand as soon as the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's our lineup today. It's ladies' night. On the Guy Benson Show on this Friday, Dagan McDowell will be here later this hour, our Fox News colleague. Dr. Nicole Sapphire will join us in the middle hour. I want to ask her about some things stated and tweeted by Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Rochelle Walensky this week about children and COVID. Dr. Sapphire will respond. And it's Friday, and we have the privilege today of enjoying some Fridays with Kat in our final hour, the happy hour, coming up just after 5 Eastern We will say hello to Kat Timph, plus some updates from producer Christine on this, a very important holiday in her world. And it's actually a holiday across the entire country, but it has special meaning to her. We'll explain all of that ahead on today's edition of the show. Let's begin with a Fox News alert. Stats, 78.1 million confirmed cases all in of COVID in the United States over the course of this pandemic so far. For reasons that we've explained many times, ad nauseum, it is a massive undercount of the true number of cases in this country, all in. But the trajectory is in the right direction, 68% down over the last two weeks. The death toll is now 930,302. That's the number of Americans who have died with or of COVID over these last 23 or so months. The Dow is down today. In the red again, currently down 121 points to 34,190. And we are just about 52 minutes away from the closing bell, and that will close things out up on Wall Street. It's been a bumpy week up there, and we'll bring you the final number for the Dow in our next hour. As we come on the air today, I want to bring you some updates to a story that we have been following up in Canada. So our colleague and friend Matt Finn at Fox News, he's on the ground in Ottawa. We've had a lot of coverage of this uh, trucker strike or this trucker protest. There are reports now in the last hour or so that the truckers have been negotiating with police. 
Some of them have been turning their engines back on and have said at least or indicated they're willing to leave their current location. So that is one a potential development. Matt also noted on Twitter, this was a few hours ago, that the Ottawa police were telling media, so cameras, reporters, to stay away from today's crackdown. And if they didn't, if they tried to capture it on camera or document what was happening, they could be subject to arrest. I mean, the heavy hand of the Canadian government in all of this is really something to behold. And I saw someone, I think it was Josh Barrow, make a really interesting point on social media last night. Why on earth has the Canadian government under Trudeau invoked these emergency powers and going like from zero to 100 on seizing bank accounts or freezing bank accounts and all this really sort of scary, extraordinary measures stuff when they hadn't really exhausted or even really come close to exhausting their normal powers. Barrow pointed out, you know, you can arrest people, you can impound vehicles, and you can clear a bridge or a roadway or whatever. That's one way to do it. And they had taken a pretty light touch in some respects, certainly not rhetorically. But then they brought out, like, the nuclear missiles and said, we're declaring this state of emergency and we can start in, instructing banks to shut down your bank accounts with no court orders. That was a huge leap, a massive escalation that I think a lot of civil liberties advocates and certainly many of the conservatives up in parliament in Ottawa saying that that was not justified, not even close, when they hadn't exhausted more typical law enforcement protocols for dealing with this protest. And I gave you some of my thoughts on the protest yesterday. Largely sympathetic to the cause in some ways, not fully sympathetic to some of the tactics. I also think the way that they're being smeared by Trudeau and the government and then, you know, all these really over-the-top, scary, almost totalitarian steps and emergency measures, I am not about any of that. So that's sort of where things stand at the moment. I want to get to some really powerful audio here in a second, but first, listen to this. It's related. The Ottawa police, this was late yesterday. Law enforcement in Ottawa, which is the, the capital in Canada, tweeted this. Think about what this tactic entails and the psychology beyond or behind this. They tweeted a photo of a little dog, like a little floofy poodle-type dog, sticking its head out of the window of what looks like a tractor-trailer truck. Cute little dog, little floof. And here's what the law enforcement official agency, this is the Bylaw Regulatory Services of Ottawa, Canada. Here's what they tweeted along with that photo of the little dog. Attention animal owners at the demonstration. If you are unable to care for your animal as a result of enforcement actions, meaning if you get arrested and your animal is stranded, your animal, they write, will be placed into protective care for eight days at your cost. After eight days, if arrangements are not made, your animal will be considered relinquished. And my interpretation of this tweet is, oh, if you like your animal, if you love your pet, if you're part of a demonstration or a protest and you're going to get detained for some reason, we're going to confiscate 
your animal, your dog, your cat. At your expense, we will house this animal for eight days, and after that, well, that pet won't be yours anymore. And there also seems to be a kind of a menacing undertone there of we might have to uh, liquidate or euthanize your pet. Think about that bullying tactic from the government in Ottawa. I mean, it is just so over the top. And I can understand why so many people are deeply offended by what they've been seeing. One of these individuals is a woman named Tammy Giuliani. She's Canadian. She's got a lovely, delightful Canadian accent. You'll hear it in a second. She appeared last night on Jesse Waters' primetime in the 7 o'clock hour on Fox News Channel. She is a small business owner along with her family. They own a small little gelato cafe in Ottawa called Stella Luna. And this is how they make their living, running a mom-and-pop gelato place. She, out of her own pocket, decided to donate $250 to this trucker cause. She'll explain why she chose to do it in the interview. And as we mentioned yesterday, the list of everyone who donated, even down to like, you know, 40 bucks, that donor list leaked. They were chased off of GoFundMe. You couldn't use those platforms. They had to go to a different platform. Because the other, you know, big tech companies are saying, no, no, you can't raise money for these people here. I mean, can you imagine GoFundMe doing something like that about the BLM riots? No, oh, no, we're not going to allow any funds to be raised here. I mean, it's, it's, they play politics, and it's under pressure from the left. And if you're a protest movement, even a violent one, that the left approves of, there are different rules for you than there are for right-leaning or right-wing protest movements, even if they are overwhelmingly peaceful. All right, I think you could call the trucker protests mostly peaceful, unlike some of the riots that we saw in the summer of 2020, just to pick one juxtaposition at somewhat random. Not really. I think the dichotomy is stark. It is undeniable. It speaks for itself. But this donor list, right, from this other crowdfunding platform was hacked, it was leaked, and journalists, following the lead of Justin Trudeau, who's calling these people a bunch of misogynist racists, Mr. Uh, Prime Minister Blackface over there, an authority apparently on racism, he's calling them every name in the book, Nazis, all of it. His attorney general or that equivalent in Canada said that people who are donating big money to a Trumpist movement should be worried about their bank accounts being seized by the government or frozen by the government. But that's what's happening up there in this ostensibly free country, the Great White North, strong and free as O Canada goes. How free really, I wonder? Well, that hacked and leaked donor list has now been used as a hit list by progressive media, meaning mainstream media, the Washington Post, CBC, other outlets have been calling up or emailing the people on the list, asking them effectively to explain themselves. Oh, hi, I'm a journalist. I see your name was on this list. You donated to these people. Why? Explain yourself. So these people were doxxed. And surprise, threats started to flow in from a bunch of tolerant leftists who are now physically threatening the well-being of people who decided that they wanted to give a few bucks to these truckers in recent days and weeks. So here's Tammy Giuliani. It's a private 
small businesswoman from Ottawa. She sells gelato. She didn't want to get involved politically in a major public way. This was hacked information. Her donation was supposed to be private. It became public without her consent in a way that is, I think, very sketchy. And then she and her family and her business, well, you'll hear from her what has happened. Let's listen. This is from last night, FNC, starting with Cut 16. What kind of threats and harassment have you faced after that donation was made public? Well, you need to understand that Stella Luna is our livelihood. And um, my husband and our children and son-in-law all work for the business. It's how we pay our rent. It's how we keep our lights on. It's how we eat. Um, so it, it, we feel very passionately about eating. <laughs> and um, that makes everyone has pushed really hard over the past two years trying to keep this business alive. So we have uh, this this passion and it just keeps going on and on. So I reached into my personal pocket and I pulled out 250 bucks of my personal money and I gave a donation to fill a gas tank of someone so they didn't have to sleep in minus 30 in the cold that night. And I think that decision speaks to my humanity and not to political beliefs. Um, but attacking our children, attacking our team, um, that's unconscionable. And I think never in my 56 years have I ever experienced a country so divided, um, so full of hatred towards friends and neighbors. Sorry, I lost you there. So full of hatred towards their friends of neighbors. Um, you know, they may have opinions that differ from theirs, but they're so willing to publicly shame and humiliate and spew forth angry vitriol. And the vitriol is starting from the very top. It's emanating from the prime minister himself. We played you this clip yesterday, this week in debate. He said that a conservative member of the parliament up there who's Jewish, a young Jewish member and conservative, because she was defending the rights of some of these truckers and also criticizing the government's massive so-called emergency overreach, that she was taking the side of the swastikas. Talk about vitriol. In case you missed it, here's cut 10. If Canadians are to trust their government, their government needs to trust Canadians. Those are the words of the Prime Minister in 2015. These people, very often misogynistic, racist, women haters, science deniers, the fringe. Same Prime Minister six years later as he fans the flames of an unjustified national emergency. So, Mr. Speaker, when did the Prime Minister lose his way? When did it happen? Mr. Speaker... Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. And on he goes. I mean, this is the only way he knows how to argue. That's Trudeau smearing these people again with a broad brush. Then this woman, a small business owner, gives 250 bucks to fill a tank so someone doesn't freeze in his truck overnight. She does it as a private donation. It gets hacked and revealed. And she is then doxxed. And her family and her business is targeted. And you could hear in her voice, Tammy Giuliani, the fear and the sadness. One more cut from last night, cut 17. Called uh, terrorist for the first 60, 36 hours, we were inundated with hatred, with threats of violence. Um, people threatened our team on the phone, telling them we're coming to get you. We're going to throw bricks through your window. You'll pay for this, you Nazi supporter. I personally have been called a disgusting pig of a woman and that I should rot in hell. 
Um, our uh, rural shop out in Merrickville, Ontario, someone draped a large bed sheet over our sign. I'm sorry. It's been it's been a tough few days, and I think you know. And uh, the sign read, "Tammy supports terrorists." Um, now, Mama Bear is going to dig out her claws on that one, and uh, we're getting the video surveillance and uh, the incident, and we will pursue uh, that with the police. But um, it, late yesterday afternoon, messages of support and encouragement started to arrive, and people from coast to coast to coast throughout Canada and the US. And, um, you know, they've been buying gift cards online and calling themselves uh, guardian angels. I mean, she didn't ask for this. She doesn't deserve this. You can agree or disagree with the cause or her thoughts on the donation of $250. That list was hacked. She was doxxed. This abuse is outrageous, and unfortunately, it's following in the footsteps and following the lead of the Prime Minister of Canada. Really gross. I'm glad that there's been some upswell of support for her and her business. She doesn't deserve this, as I said. The Guy Benson Show is just getting started on this Friday. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Yesterday on the show, we mentioned in our interview with Steve Scalise, who's from here in Louisiana, that Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats have apparently decided the science has changed enough that actually they will allow all the members of Congress to be eligible to attend the March 1st State of the Union address for President Biden. So I thought, okay, maybe she's doing a a bit of political damage control here. And my idea for Glenn Youngkin giving his speech and the response down in Richmond might not have as many legs at this point, except maybe not. Senator Marco Rubio tweeted this yesterday, below are the COVID theater rituals required to attend the State of the Union. No thank you, maybe next time, Rubio says. And here's what you have to do. There's testing requirements. You have to adhere to social distancing and seating separation, so they're going to distance the seating. You must use waterless hand cleanser when you arrive in the chamber. This is an airborne virus, I'll remind you. We've known this for almost two years. You must avoid physical contact with all other individuals, so no handshaking or anything. Remember the Super Bowl? I mean, this is crazy. Oh, and of course, you have to wear an FDA-approved, medical-grade, fitted mask the entire time. Doesn't that sound fun? Super science from Speaker Pelosi and company. I stick with my recommendation on Yunkin. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Friday vibes on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast on demand every day. Joining us now is Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst 
on Fox Business Network, also business correspondent for Fox News Channel. You see her regularly on the five mornings with Maria every morning. She's a busy woman, including hosting the 5 p.m. hour on FBM this week. I was on with her yesterday from New Orleans. I'm still here. Dagan, you told me to have some fun, and I did last night. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> I know you know how to have fun, too. I know that personally. Thank you for having me, guys. It's also hard to avoid fun in this particular town, right? It's sort of yeah. Vegas-esque in some ways. It's like the party never really never stops. It is. It, I love New Orleans because it's just some of the best of the United States in terms of the people. The culture is so unique. I just love everything about it. And I actually didn't make it to the French Quarter on this trip. I'll have to go back and come back here at some point soon because I didn't have the full-blown, like, you know, blowout fun of New Orleans wildness because I had to work, and I was here for work-related reasons, but maybe next time. <laughs> and I know Mardi Gras right around the corner, so I'm escaping, I guess, right before the, the parades start yes. rolling. <laughs> Let's start, Dagan, on uh, the economy. I thought this was really interesting. Did you see the New York Times op-ed from Steve Ratner, former Obama economic advisor, really in a pointed way calling out President Biden for his – spin, really, that it's the supply chain crisis that is at fault for this massive 40-year high rise in inflation. Ratner's arguing that's not true. You've got to stop saying it over and over again. That's basically the gist of, again, an Obama advisor in the pages of the New York Times calling out Joe Biden. Yeah, I think that if my memory serves that Steve Ratner actually used the word dishonest. And it's true to blame uh, – you don't get 40-year high inflation just from a supply chain crisis. You have the kind of two-fold problem where you had uh, unnecessary government spending, particularly in the last year, that stimulated demand at a time when supplies were tight and the supply chain was recovering, but then also just the reckless – monetary stimulus coming from the Federal Reserve. And the fiscal spending from the government and the monetary policy from the Fed, they go hand in hand because the the debt spending from the Biden administration, it was the Fed that's been sopping up that debt by expanding its balance sheet up to almost $9 trillion. They have been, the central bank, buying up the debt that the Biden administration or the federal government was issuing. So they, they, they are part and parcel. And so now Biden is you know, he's going to focus on inflation in the State of the Union. He is going to talk – he has already been talking about, like, the kind of, I feel your pain uh, that you would hear from <laughs> Bill Clinton. That I, I rem, You know, I remember when I used to drive automobiles – that kind of I, I, I know what it's like to pay pay a lot of money at the gas pump, but talking about it is way different than actually walking that talk and doing something about it. And I like the Jensaki was just asked uh, what are you going to do about inflation? Are you going to waive the gas tax? And her pat response is, everything is still on the table. But just waiving the gasoline, the federal gasoline tax, that actually goes to pay for, goes into the highway trust fund. That won't do anything. 
that but gasoline prices in this country and and internationally have in part been juiced sent higher because of the Biden administration's policies on energy. They have done everything in their power mm-hmm. to take a hammer, a hatchet, a chainsaw to our energy independence and our energy economy. Um, we're not producing as much oil as we were a, a few years ago, pre-pandemic levels. We were, The United States was the swing producer, meaning that we controlled, because we had the most excess production capacity in the world, the United States had control over the global price of oil. And we were the swing producer. We don't have that anymore. Like we're not – We the Biden administration has sent the signal to fossil fuel producers. Again, Biden over and over again blames evil meat and evil oil right. for Big the inflation. Big, Big oil. Meat. Yeah, it's always that. And, it's, and, never, and, it's never their right. fault. Right. So he – and there was actually a really great article that uh, James Freeman wrote in the – Wall Street Journal. It was an. Uh, he noted that there was a piece in the Washington Post. If I sound funny, it's because I'm bending over to pick it up off my floor. Um, that Thank it you was for a, that color commentary. Yes. Well, I, as, you know, um, I have. That's actually how I prep. I have all of my research on the floor in in piles of oh. like. Here's inflation. Here oh, is yeah. crime. Here is uh, Ukraine. Here is I've Russia. Done that. Um, so James Freeman notes that there was an article that was in the Washington Post where there was testimony that was going to be um, delivered at the uh, in front of Congress, and the economists at the White House Council of Economic Advisors raised raised objections to the idea that a spike in prices was due to corporate power. So even they economists know that what's coming out of the mouths of Biden and his cronies is not true and no, it's, it's not wise. No, it's it's ridiculous. Right. And oh yes, all of a sudden these these corporations have decided all at once to engage in this price gouging that they weren't doing previously, but they all got greedy at the same time. I mean no one believes that. And you have the party, and we mentioned this yesterday with uh, Congressman Scalise who was on the show, played in the clip of Chuck Schumer over on the Senate side basically saying, oh, we can't just complain about inflation, which is what the Republicans do. We need solutions, and we Democrats have solutions. I'm like, I would love to see what those solutions are, because a few weeks ago you were trying to spend $5 trillion more trillion in new spending in the middle of all this inflation. And it would seem, based on what the most recent report on the, I guess the producer side, inflation continues to hit multi-decade records, and on these latest metrics – they were much more acute, much more painful than even the experts were projecting. I know the transitory line has become a punchline and, and did months ago, but it seems like this problem is going to be with us for a while. And the deeper this goes into this year, I think the deeper the panic sets in among Democrats because November is coming. Because it screws the American people. It's a tax. Each and every day, wages are falling when mm-hmm. adjusting for inflation. Wages in the last year are down what 1.7 percent when you factor in inflation. Number one, number two, it's you know with producer prices or the wholesale prices running at almost a double-digit clip year over year. That those producer prices will be will feed into consumer prices in the months to come. And what you're really starting to see, it's not just goods inflation. And this has been the concern, not that they acted on it, but certainly at the Federal Reserve. The goods inflation, say groceries, 
is feeding into services inflation. So for like going out to eat dinner or going on trips and vacations. And I'm certainly seeing that, that you – like looking at hotel, I was going trying to go see my family in Los Angeles. Not that I grew up there, obviously, but I was looking <laughs> at hotel rooms. It, it's eleven hundred dollars a night, any night of the week. It's it to get a nice hotel room. Yep. It's just it. So it, when it becomes entrenched, that inflation begets inflation because people's expectations change. Now the data is not yet bearing that out, but when you I- anticipate inflation, then you kind of actually create it. Um, that's what the consumer mindset can do. It, I have an idea. I have an idea for the Democrats. If they really wanted to fight inflation, and I am not in favor of higher taxes, but the Democrats could come out with a platform of cutting spending and raising taxes. That would curb demand. And that, I mean, it could reshape the party, but they will never do that. I will say, Dagan, you mentioned that you're not from Los Angeles originally. Your accent does read more south than Southern California. I can confirm. So uh, that is definitely true. But your point is well taken on the inflation. I want to shift to politics. I know that you covered this on your show yesterday as well. A lot of people are saying, hmm, about a speech delivered this week in New York to the New York Democratic Party by twice failed presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. She's back. She gave a speech ripping into the Republicans on all sorts of different fronts. She attacked Fox News, which I know is a very popular thing to do on the left, and uh, she was warmly received. Does this mean that she wants to stay relevant and perhaps relevant toward 2024? I know this comes up from time to time. Is she running? You know, Biden might not run. He might not last. Does she want to take a third crack at this thing? What do you think? I I think she does. I think that she has always been plagued by delusions of her own excellence and likability. But if you listen to the whole speech, clearly she targets Fox because she wants Fox to keep talking about her. You know, she makes these kind of semi-legal threats against the network, which was just comical. Ridiculous. But you, but you did hear – so I, I lo- love living in New York City for one reason, the New York Post. And Maureen Callahan, this in- incredible writer, wrote Hillary Clinton, The Definition of Insanity. It was a column that was in the paper today. And she notes, Maureen Callahan does, that Hillary Clinton talked about the following. She, she hit on Russia, China, the January 6th riot. Voting rights, reproductive rights, labor unions, child tax credits, family paid leave, health care, and culture war nonsense. She hit on all of those topics. So she (laughs) – Maureen writes, it was vintage Hillary Clinton lacking in nuance, subtext, or humility. But if she's hitting on all those issues, she clearly has some eye toward uh, running for the presidency. However – what message does that send to Kamala Harris? Isn't that just horribly racist that Hillary Clinton would even think about trampling on Kamala Harris's opportunity when Clinton's opportunity passed by not once but twice? Well, I think that that's what Harris would argue because she accuses everyone of sexism and or racism when it comes to her various failures. But I did notice that Hillary did mention all these uh, – the culture war nonsense or the culture war lies – that are being force-fed to people by Republicans and Fox News. Well, here's the thing. 
San Francisco Chronicle had a story out about DCCC, so Democratic internal polling. And it found that critiques of COVID-19 restrictions, for example, were slightly less potent than other issues. But still, in swing districts, key swing districts, 64 percent of voters agreed with the sentiment that Democrats in Congress support defunding the police, taking more cops off the street. So you had you had the COVID stuff, which was worrisome for the DCCC. More worrisome is the so-called culture war nonsense of soft on crime policies defunding the police. They also asked people, for example, do you believe that the Democrats in Congress have created a border crisis that allows illegal immigrants to enter the country without repercussions? 62% of voters in swing districts agreed with that. A large majority of swing district voters believe that there's a democratic border crisis. I know they would call that a, you know, culture war nonsense, but it isn't. And it's, hurting the Democrats because people are experiencing it. They're seeing it, not because they're stupid or they're being duped by, you know, our colleagues here at Fox News. Here's one more question. Uh, Is spending out of control? 61% of Americans say yes. 59% of Americans in these swing districts say that they agree that, quote, Democrats are too focused on pushing an agenda that divides us and judging those who don't see things their way. 61% of swing district voters say Democrats are teaching kids as young as five critical race theory, which teaches that America is a racist country and that white people are racist. These are large, substantial majorities of swing district voters based on the Democrats' own internal polling, Dagan. They can whine and complain and lash out about culture war nonsense. I think the reality is they're the ones waging the culture war, and they're mad that people are noticing. Right, and they're mad that people aren't just noticing, but voting based on that anger. Right. Look at what look at what happened. What happened in Virginia? Parents were angry, and they actually weren't the parents who voted for Glenn Youngkin and the new lieutenant governor and the new uh, attorney general in the state. Their parents who were independents who really didn't probably weren't that politically motivated until they saw their children being crushed. Well, I mean, look at San Francisco. Forget Northern Virginia. Virginia. Exactly. How about San Francisco? San Francisco. Yeah. The, and three, I see that- the three school board members who were voted out by a margin of, of 70 percent or more for the very same things that were going on in Virginia, particularly northern Virginia, that got Glenn Youngkin elected governor. Well, they're blaming the white supremacy. Saying, they're saying we right. lost in San Francisco by a huge margin because of white supremacy. I mean, the, the delusion is very strong. It runs very deep. But there, but there are a lot – just like in Northern Virginia, there are a lot of Asian parents, mm-hmm. Asian American parents, who were upset by the dumbing down of the admissions to these um, math and science high schools, these gifted and talented high schools, to uh, to make sure that the student body was more diverse, and that was at the expense of. Asian American students who were driven to succeed by their parents, their immigrant parents, in many instances. Well, and it's, it's not just Asians. I mean, happened. there's plenty of Hispanics and black parents who probably say these absolute clowns are trying to tell us that Abraham Lincoln, his name can't be on a school, and they're going to scrape his name off a school building while the school's closed for a year and a half, and our kids are sitting at home in this failed virtual learning experiment. I mean, the the breadth of the disgust is 
evidence by the margins. It was 75 percent kicked these people out, and at least one of them was out there raging, saying this is all racism and white supremacy. And my message to the left and the hard left, all the way over to Hillary Clinton, just stick with this. If you think that that's what's going to work for you, please, by all means, continue to make those arguments, continue to make that case, and you're going to get absolutely wiped out in a couple of months. And uh, my hope is that is exactly what happens. Dagan McDowell, we've got to let you run. Of course, Fox Business Network anchor, business correspondent for FNC. Very fun person to hang out with, I will attest. And let's do that soon, Dagan. Thanks for dropping by. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Do you see the photograph by any chance of Prince Harry with the Vince Lombardi trophy, the Super Bowl trophy in Los Angeles? Big smile. He's holding the trophy. He's indoors. No mask, of course. Mask mandate in place, but, you know, he's royalty, so it doesn't apply to him or to the adults in charge. It's just the kids. Sorry, kids. But I was thinking about that photo when I saw this tweet. It was a story from the New York Times. Josh Krasauer shared it. Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, they expressed concerns about the misinformation from Joe Rogan because they're also Spotify creators. And there's a story about how this Rogan contract with Spotify is $200 million and all this stuff. And the Times notes that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have their own deal, and they spoke out on this issue, on Joe Rogan and Spotify. Here's interesting. They have this contract to produce podcasts. It's lucrative. They have produced one podcast, one so far. Meanwhile, another filmmaker, Ava Duveronay, who also has a contract to create podcasts for Spotify, she was railing against Spotify and Joe Rogan. You know how many she's created? Zero. She's done none. Who are these deadbeats yelling about Joe Rogan? How about you do your job? There's a thought. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour of three is underway here on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. I'm Guy Benson, broadcasting live from News Talk 99.5 FM WRNO in New Orleans, Louisiana. Glad to have you along. Much to come, including Dr. Nicole Sapphire. Later this hour, Kat Timpf coming up in the next hour. We begin our second of three hours between 3 and 6 Eastern with a Fox News alert. And the Dow closes down 232 points today, ending the session at 34,079. Heading into the weekend, another Fox News alert. We are waiting word from President Biden. He is scheduled to speak at the White House at some point this hour on the issue of Ukraine and a potential invasion, maybe an imminent invasion by the Russians. And we will keep an eye on Biden. If there is something newsworthy, we'll bring that to you. We might dip in if we want to have that opportunity. We shall see. But earlier at the White House, we heard from the deputy national security advisor who was part of the press briefing. So Jen Psaki was out there, but she brought Anna Neuberger with her. And Neuberger had a few things to say about this unfolding, I would say, crisis and 
what the U.S. government is indicating is a strong likelihood of a war. Here is what the Deputy National Security Advisor said from the White House podium just hours ago in Cut 21. Russia likes to move in the shadows and counts on a long process of attribution so it can continue its malicious behavior against Ukraine in cyberspace, including pre-positioning for its potential invasion. In light of that, we're moving quickly to attribute the DDoS attacks. We believe that the Russian government is responsible for wide-scale cyber attacks on Ukrainian banks this week. We have technical information that links Russian, the Russian Main Intelligence Directorate, or GRU, as known GRU infrastructure was seen transmitting high volumes of communication to Ukraine-based IP addresses and domains. We've shared the underlying intelligence with Ukraine and with our European partners. So the idea is that these cyber attacks launched by the Russians and Russian proxies against the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian banks, that is being anticipated, that is being interpreted as a prelude to war, where you mess with their sort of digital infrastructure, and then the military attack could come next. Newberger, who's the deputy NSA, went on. This was again at the White House earlier in Cut 22. We're shoring up our defenses at home. While there are currently no specific or credible cyber threats to the homeland, the U.S. government has been preparing for potential geopolitical contingencies since before Thanksgiving. The White House has coordinated extensive outreach by agencies with the private sector. Specifically, private sector owners and operators of critical infrastructure. In that outreach, departments and agencies have gone to unprecedented and extraordinary lengths to share sensitive information, and most importantly, to outline specific steps companies can take to make their systems more secure. The Russian ambassador to the United Nations, Sergei Rabkov, is out there banging the table and expressing umbrage that the world is accusing Russia of things. This is what the Russians always do. This is propaganda. This is their deputy foreign minister at the United Nations, I should say. In cut three, listen. Attempts to place the blame on Russia are futile and baseless, and this only hides the goal of shifting the blame away from Ukraine. I must say we are very disappointed by the ostrich-like position of our Western colleagues who are trying not to see obvious things. Yes, uh, they're very disappointed in the Western nations just seeing what's obviously happening. I mean, it's just so shameless to blame Ukraine or anyone else for what appears to be a war forthcoming if it does happen, that it is exclusively the decision of one man, Vladimir Putin. There would be no crisis. There would be no potential war. There would be none of this if Putin didn't decide to amass more than 100,000 of his troops right on the border and to launch cyber attacks. This is 100% on the Russians. If they decide to invade, they were not provoked. There's not even really a fig leaf that they can hide behind. I know there are some of these potential false flag events that I know they're trying to say, oh, look, we've been attacked. I saw a report that one of these uh, videos of a, of a car bomb was actually recorded days ago, and now they're putting it out as new propaganda. I mean, they're not very subtle. They're very clumsy, actually. And they send one of their goons to the U.N. to say, oh, yes, we're just so disappointed in uh, the Western colleagues here who refuse to see how this is not Ukraine's fault. 
that were about to invade them for absolutely no reason. Again, I would add. The Russians invaded and took Crimea during the, uh, the Obama years. They still occupy illegitimately Crimea, which is sovereign Ukrainian territory. And now the concern is it's about to get a lot worse. Here is Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, also at the United Nations, giving a very different view of things than what we just heard from the Russians in cut two. Russia plans to manufacture a pretext for its attack. This could be a violent event that Russia will blame on Ukraine or an outrageous accusation that Russia will level against the Ukrainian government. We don't know exactly the form it will take. It could be a fabricated so-called terrorist bombing inside Russia. The invented discovery of a mass grave, a staged drone strike against civilians, or a fake, even a real attack using chemical weapons. Now, again, we don't know what is exactly going to happen, and hopefully war does not happen. What does sort of bother me is some in the West kind of pretending like, oh, the the warmongers are at it again. They're beating the drums for war. They want this war to happen. I don't think anyone wants this war to happen. In the United States, we've already been told by our leadership, it's sort of a bipartisan consensus, we're not sending U.S. troops to Ukraine. We're going to send them some defensive weapons to help defend themselves. I think that's totally appropriate. But this is not a problem of the West. This is not an American problem. This is not a situation where we can blame, you know, hawks or neocons or whatever in America. This is all about the decisions and the actions of Russia. If you want to get mad at someone, if you're an anti-war person, because I see a lot of the, just the, the reflexive knee-jerk action here has been to criticize almost everyone but, and certainly criticize America, that's what they always do. Sometimes we deserve it, often we don't. But we have free and open conversations in this country, unlike Russia, where if you uh, say too many things about Putin or his cronies, you fall out a window and die, right? That's what happens to you in Russia. If you have a problem, if you're angry about the prospect of war between Ukraine and Russia, you can direct that anger at precisely one human being, and that's Vladimir Putin. Within the last hour, there is a new report in the Wall Street Journal. And I'd imagine this, which was given on background from administration sources, is probably going to be roughly the gist of what President Biden says when he gives this update at some point this hour. And again, we might dip into that. We might not. This, I think, is probably the cheat sheet because the Wall Street Journal has their sources. And I think the White House is putting out what they believe is happening. Here's the headline. From the journal, again, this was published less than an hour ago. U.S. officials warn of imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine with tanks, jet fighters, and cyber attacks. Prospects for averting war appear dim, officials say, even as Biden administration works to arrange new talks with Russia. I really thought like some of the song and dance that we saw recently in the last couple of days this week of Russia making a big show of, oh, Sergei Lavrov is talking to Putin and it's all on television and we feel like there's more diplomacy to be done. Oh, comrade, yes, I agree. Let's do. I think that was just a giant obvious performance to make it seem like, oh, yeah, they're committed to, diplo to diplomacy. 
They don't want war, even though they're the only people who would be responsible for this war. There's no point to this war, except from the Russian vantage point, they feel like it might benefit them. Now to invade the sovereign territory of a neighbor that they're afraid could maybe one day join NATO. There's a lot of sort of history behind this stuff. But they want to send this ham-fisted propaganda signal to the world that they're doing everything they can to avoid this war that they have been preparing for for months. And they can say, oh, well, we have to throw up our hands. Our ham hands are now thrown in the air because we've done everything possible. We've done everything we can, but now war is inevitable for whatever excuse they might come up with. It's just so obvious. The cyber attacks, again, not subtle. This is what they do. The false flag nonsense. Here's the Wall Street Journal story. U.S. officials say they expect a Russian attack on Ukraine in the next few days that could involve a broad combination of jet fighters, tanks, ballistic uh, ballistic missiles, and cyber attacks with the ultimate intention of rendering the country's leadership powerless, meaning the government in Kiev, the democratically elected pro-West, pro-America government of Ukraine. These U.S. officials said prospects for averting war now appear very dim, adding that the Biden administration will continue to try to keep open the window for diplomacy. The officials said Russian President Vladimir Putin has laid the groundwork in recent days through a series of false flag operations long predicted by U.S. and allied officials that intended to make it look as if Ukraine has provoked Russia into a conflict, thus justifying the Russian invasion. As I said, this is how they do it. It's what they did in Georgia, the country. It's what they did with Crimea. They just cook up some excuse, and they expect people to what? To buy this? No one buys it, right? I think they're just putting on appearances. Oh, yes, we've amassed 100,000-plus troops on the border. We've been threatening war. And now it's going to be out of nowhere Ukraine that's going to come out and provoke us. So we have to—I mean, come on. So— That's the latest. It's pretty bleak stuff. I want to bring you that update on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on The Guy Benson Show from New Orleans, Louisiana today. Appreciate you being here. Another update on this story involving the man who has been charged with attempted murder in Louisville, Kentucky. He attempted to assassinate a mayoral candidate a Jewish mayoral candidate, which is relevant because this alleged shooter now has a footprint on social media that would point toward a hate crime motivation, perhaps here in this case. And the man who's been charged, Quintez Brown, as we've mentioned the last couple days, is a longtime lefty activist in the community. He had a column that he would publish at the biggest newspaper in Kentucky, where he called for, among other things, gun control. Then he got a gun and shot at a man running for mayor in the city of Louisville. And we mentioned yesterday how BLM, the organization, crowdfunded $100,000 to bail this guy out of jail. And we thought that was yet another example of the radicalism of BLM. And it reflects extremely poorly on their judgment and the judgment of their donors. People who are giving them money, I mean, this is your cause? An apparent hate crime and certainly an attempted political assassination, and you're going to pool your money and your funds 
to try to get that person walking the streets as soon as possible. That's precisely what they did. But there's a bigger question here that I think I almost breezed past. And I saw someone else make it, and it occurred to me, oh, how did I miss that even more screamingly obvious point? I skipped ahead to criticizing BLM, the organization. I think it's a totally warranted critique. But there's another critique here, which is how the hell did this guy get bail at all? Right Here is someone who went to the campaign headquarters of someone running for office and tried to murder him in cold blood. There was certainly, I would argue, a potential political motivation. We now know that there might be a hate-fueled motivation as well. This would seem like someone who would be exactly the type of individual in custody who would not be eligible for bond or bail. This is someone who is dangerous, who should be behind bars. But some judge decided that this person could get out for 100 grand, and this person's friends at BLM said, okay, we're going to go ahead and make that happen. I saw a story that the candidate, the mayoral candidate, is asking questions. He's objecting to why this person was let out at all. I think his name is Craig Greenberg. And you know what I have to say? I have some sympathy. If my would-be assassin was allowed to walk free within a day or two of that attempted assassination, I would also probably object to that. I know the White House has expressed puzzlement through Jen Psaki about what people are even talking about when it comes to soft on crime and the consequences of being soft on crime. I would say here's an example. I know Kentucky's a conservative place, but Louisville is one of the cities that is blue. Why on earth is that individual, why is that person, Quintez Brown, leftist, racial justice warrior, gun control champion, why is this person out on the street, having just tried to murder a candidate for mayor in his city? One last thing about this. We told you also this week about the Las Vegas Sun, major newspaper in Nevada. They had an editorial that they rushed out about this shooting where they blamed Republicans and right-wing rhetoric, and extremist Republicans, I believe is their exact phrase, for what happened, saying that they didn't have any evidence yet that this person was connected to the right-wing, but this sort of violence and rhetoric is certainly fueled by and the province of the right-wing. And they published that editorial many hours after we knew who the suspect was and what his ideological profile was, and it was very much not right-wing, but they printed their editorial anyway. And they've come under huge criticism, so they've now updated the editorial in the online version. Editors note, this story has been updated to reflect reporting on the alleged shooter's political ties. And here's how they changed their editorial. You you can't even make this up. While it's been reported that the activist was involved in the Black Lives Matter and gun safety movements, (laughs) what a way to put that, there has been no indication yet that he has ties to any right-wing organizations. The shooting comes amid a rise in threats against politicians, fueled increasingly by violent rhetoric coming from extremist Republicans. So they throw in there that it appears that this guy is a total left-winger, and he loves gun safety. And we don't have any ties that we can find to right-wing organizations. That would be because he's a left-winger. But the shooting comes amid an environment that is fueled by extremist Republicans. So they get around to blaming the other side for this left-wing 
shooting anyway, which was the goal all along. Just A-plus hackery. You cannot get really any more pathetic than that. So hats off to you, editors of the Las Vegas Sun. You've got your narrative. It's quite clear, and you're going to stick to it no matter what. Factual information? Who's she? The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Dr. Nicole Sapphire responds to Dr. Fauci when we return. listening to a new generation of talk guy benson halfway through today's show happy friday it's the guy benson show guybensonshow.com free podcast every day we encourage you to check it out joining us now is dr nicole sapphire board certified medical doctor senior fox news medical contributor and best-selling author of panic attack doctor it's great to have you back here thanks so much guy i'm just wondering why on this blustery day in new york i'm not sitting with you in new orleans uh, I would strongly recommend it, actually. You could fly on down. We could go out and eat and drink Mardi Gras starting soon. I'm totally down. Like, you let me know. I might even delay my flight if you can get down here. I will see what I can do. <laughs> All right, we can talk off the air. In the meantime, <laughs> on the air yesterday, I played this soundbite. Dr. Fauci in an interview is just this week talking again about masks on children in schools Here's Fauci calling it still too risky to take those masks off. Cut seven. It's understandable why people want to take masks off the kids. But right now, given the level of activity that we have, it is risky. All right, doctor. I had my own reaction to that yesterday. I'm, of course, just a layperson. I'm not a medical doctor, but I felt like I was listening to someone talking in the spring of 2020 or maybe the fall of 2020. Like, oh, if we're looking at the rates right now and it's still a little bit risky, it's like, has he not seen all of the evidence, all of the outcomes, all of the data in Europe, in the UK and, you know, Scandinavia, we had a story, for example, that we talked about from Sweden earlier in the week, in Florida, in private schools across the country that have been open without masks on in many places with no real problem at all. It's like all of that information has not been I guess, internalized or processed by Dr. Fauci, and he concludes that still here we are in mid to late February of 2022. It's too risky to take masks off of children in schools, even though like, there's no benefit that we found based on data to masking kids in schools at all. I mean, am I overstating that? Well, you're not, Guy. And, you know, my initial response when I saw that from Dr. Fauci was, define your level of risk. What is risky to you and how would you define it? Because by removing face masks from children in schools, if we're talking about the level of risk that would pose to children, that level of risk is such so nominal. It is so much smaller than what we live with every single day. 
thinking about getting in the car to go to school every morning, children riding their bicycles home from school, not to mention just everyday activities. They are at a significantly higher risk from so many other things that we have accepted a part of our everyday life than they are from not only just COVID-19, but the fact that it has been proven over and over and over again, these single-layer cloth masks that the majority of children are wearing and the majority of children are wearing incorrectly are really do having no benefit in the reduction of community transmission of this virus, not to mention that it is causing harms. And I think that's an important point because I've tweeted about this and I had some people pushing back on me because whenever you tweet anything about this, people come out of the woodwork to pretend like you're some monster who doesn't care about the lives of children. And you like, I feel like I have to make the point over and over again every day and show my work and link to scholarly pieces about it and all of it. But people, some skeptics, for example, are saying, well, yeah, we don't love the masks either, but we're not sure we agree that there's any harm here. Like, it might be inconvenient, but where do you get that, that there's harm? And I link to pieces in The Atlantic and The Wall Street Journal and elsewhere where there's an increasing, right, body of evidence here that especially for some kids with special needs in particular, the masking is doing developmental, academic, and social harm to these kids. Uh, Of course, and we have seen a lot of reviews come out at this point showing that we have an entire generation of children who are behind educationally. And, yes, some of that is from being out of school, being remote learning, but a lot of it is tied to their direct development. And experts are linking that to having face masks on the children, on the teachers. Having facial recognition is a vital part of childhood development. It has only been during the pandemic that the American Academy of Pediatrics and others have quietly removed that part from their websites. Pre-COVID, they thought it was an, a, a fundamental need that children see the faces of their caregivers and their students or of their educators. But in the wave of the politicization of these face masks, they have said, you know what, never mind, it's probably not that big of a deal. Everything we have said in every study that has demonstrated up until this point, that's probably just wrong. But I can tell you as a mother of three children. How can they do that? How can they bring themselves to do that and look at themselves in the mirror and say that we're serious (laughs) people, we're serious scientists, we care about children? How can you just pivot based on your new needs, based on sort of new realities where you can just say, oh, all that other work, all that that whole body of evidence that's been developed over decades, never mind anymore because we need this excuse and we want to tell parents it doesn't matter. I just, I just don't know how these people can, can live with themselves being that shameless. I don't even know what the word science means anymore. The, the, the mean, the name has been so distorted throughout the last two years that science itself doesn't seem like it is an individual and independent entity um, free from politic- politicization. In fact, I see science at this point as a way to form public policy to fit whatever narrative it is that you are wanting to push. There doesn't seem to be an independent science anymore, and it is it is beyond disturbing for someone who has spent their entire life trying to be in this academic world. Dr. Sapphire, we've had you respond here to what Dr. Fauci said in the interview. Here's something else that I'd like to get your reaction to. It is from the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky. She tweeted this yesterday. In recent months, I'm quoting, in recent months, we have seen hospitalization rates among children higher than any point in the pandemic. Parents, I strongly encourage you to get your eligible children vaccinated against COVID-19 to best protect children not eligible, surround them with vaccinated people. Okay, so... I am pro-vaccine in a very major way, and you and I have talked about that many times. The question of vaccinating kids 
is more complicated. You and I have had that conversation as well. You wrote an op-ed with Dr. McCary in the Wall Street Journal about the trade-offs and maybe the types of kids who should be prioritized for vaccines. For everyone else, it probably shouldn't be required. But And you feel free to weigh in on that. But I'm most interested in that first sentence that I read where Walensky is basically putting fear into parents, saying we've seen hospitalization rates among children higher than ever in these last few months. But am I mistaken, or did even Dr. Fauci admit publicly, Dr. Sapphire, that most of those so-called hospitalizations for COVID among children are incidental and not caused by COVID? They just happen to test positive as a matter of course under a mandatory you know, test regime at a hospital, and they were there for something else, why would she cite those hospitalization rates when, to me, that seems misleading? Well, Guy, uh, Dr. Walensky is very crafty in the way that she words things. What she said was not incorrect, was that there's a higher rate of hospitalizations among children with the Omicron uh, spike. But she's talking about hospitalizations per overall population. And we tend to see higher hospitalization rates among young children every winter because of flu, RSV, reactive airway disease, and so forth. Omicron caused a substantially higher level of cases in children during this winter month. We had significant proportion of COVID-positive patients that were in children. So when you're actually talking about your hospitalization rate from COVID, that did not increase with Omicron. Just how many children essentially were hospitalized increased. And as you astutely pointed out, we not only have the recent study of four large academic institutions who evaluated their hospitalizations and said about 26% of the hospitalizations that were reported as COVID hospitalizations were incidental. That falls in line with what we've seen out of New York, out of California, out of the UK, where when it comes to children, children specifically, upward towards 50% of those hospitalized for COVID really weren't hospitalized for COVID, but there was an incidental diagnosis because of the surveillance testing. Right. And then they put doing. out these tweets. It's like, oh, here's the CDC director. This seems scary. We have to follow the CDC. All these kids are going to the hospital for COVID or because of COVID. And that really isn't the actual case. And I wanted to just underscore that point, not coming from me and not rebutting Dr. Fauci coming from me, but coming from a doctor. Our guest, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board certified medical doctor, Fox News, senior medical contributor. All right, doctor, maybe I'll see you down here in New Orleans at some point, whether it's this time or next time. Let's do it. Absolutely. I'll be there wearing lots of beads. Okay, it's the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show, this is an interesting sort of culture-related story that we've been loosely following a little bit here on the program. It involves this transgender swimmer, Leah Thomas, at the University of Pennsylvania in the Ivy League, who competed as a man on the men's team for Penn for three years, then is transitioned to being a woman, and is now competing as a woman on the women's team. And there have been all sorts of reports and complaints from her teammates who are told that they have to publicly root for her under basically threat from the university, even though she's kicking their rear ends because physically in many ways she is still male and still has male genitalia. And they say that's 
a subject of consternation and awkwardness in the locker room and that sort of thing. It's just a really strange situation. And it's gotten a lot of attention because she keeps setting all sorts of records and is just crushing the competition by huge margins. And a lot of the girls, the women, say this is not fair. This is not a level playing field or swimming pool in this case. This is not just. And with every new record set and every new championship and every new race won by this Leah Thomas, the controversy gets more and more attention and more fuel. And we've said this before. We think that everyone should be treated with dignity and respect due unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. We are not here to demean anyone or to attack trans people at all. There is a separate question about fairness in athletic competition, where physicality, whether it's testosterone or muscle twitch or you know, bone density and physical size, where these things all play a role. And if you're going to have women's sports and you're going to have people who were born not as women participating in women's sports, if there is such a clear disparity in the physical ability between biological women and trans women, is that fair? Is that really an attack on women's and girls' sports? And this has been one of the cultural battles playing out in this country in recent years. So Leah Thomas, this is why it's getting headlines again, she just set an Ivy League pool record at this pool at Harvard, beating the closest competition by seven seconds. And to give you a sense of how long that is, just let's do it together. Ready? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. She was like chilling at the end of the pool, having won for that long before the next person, woman, was able to come and touch the side of the pool and come in second. And Penn Swimming put out a tweet with the video, like celebrating Leah Thomas is the champion. And a lot of people are very upset about it for understandable reasons. Some of her teammates have been speaking out anonymously for fear of reprisals. They put a letter out recently that read in part, we fully support Leah Thomas in her decision to affirm her gender identity and to transition from a man to a woman. Leah has every right to live her life authentically. However, we also recognize that when it comes to sports competition, that the biology of sex is a separate issue from someone's gender identity. Biologically, Leah holds an unfair advantage over competition in the women's category, as evidenced by her rankings that have bounced from 462 as a male to number one as a female. If she were to be eligible to compete against us, she could now break Penn, Ivy, and NCAA women's swimming records, feats she never could have done as a male athlete. In the letter, this is interesting, the swimmers claim, these are teammates and other female swimmers, that they were told, quote, we would be removed from the team or that we would never get a job offer if they spoke out against Thomas's inclusion in women's competition. That is, I think, outrageous. Right? Here are some women who are very passionate about this, who are varsity athletes who are recruited to go and swim as women, and they're being told, you're getting crushed every race by this teammate who was on the men's team, what, two years ago, 
And if you say anything about that and how it's unfair or unjust in your mind and not a fair competition, you will be thrown off the team and will blackball you. Right? It'll be hard for you to get a job. They're going to label these women as transphobes. That's, I guess, the threat that they are now alleging from Penn. Now, the NCAA, this has become such an embarrassment and I think such a problem that the NCAA is now looking to change the rules and change the guidelines for who can qualify under which side of the competition with the new rules coming into play, not this coming academic year, but the following one. So in the meantime, based on the current standards, Leah Thomas can continue to compete as a woman and will continue to rack up wins in women's competition. Meanwhile, there's also this other element to the whole controversy. There's another trans swimmer in the Ivy League who competes for Yale. This is a person who was born a female, has transitioned to male, but still competes against females. So it's a transition in the other direction from one gender to another, This is now a biologically born female who now identifies and lives her life, or his life, I should say, as a male, but is still competing, and this is why I'm sort of tripping over my words, is still competing against females in the women competition. Why wouldn't the trans man have to swim against men if the trans woman is allowed to swim against women? I think... We might suspect why that would be the case. I think the trans man would lose badly in competition at this level against men. And so, very strangely, and some of this comes down to the specific allowances and testosterone levels and letter of the law, this person technically is allowed to continue swimming against women even though he would say, I'm a man, I identify as a man, but... He gets to compete against women, as does the biologically born man who swam as a man on the men's team, now identifying as a woman. She also gets to swim against the women. That just doesn't seem to make sense. I could understand why the families and the women themselves would be very upset about these standards and about these rules. And as I said, the NCAA has started to move to correct some of this because it's so glaring what's happening. I think this creates a bit of an interesting intersection for cultural warriors on the left who are very pro-trans but also very pro-woman and very pro-Title IX, for example. How would they reconcile all of this? To me, it just seems glaringly unfair. And perhaps the worst part about it is the school allegedly telling the women on the team, do not speak out, do not say a peep, or you will be punished. Not just now, but perhaps Throughout your career, we'll see to it. That's the wokest of the woke position. And I suspect even among those of us who strongly support LGBT rights, this is too much. This is too far. This is not fair. And this issue is not going away. So we wanted to flag it because it's cropped up again. And we'll update you as events warrant. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show on this Friday from New Orleans. That is straight ahead. Cat Timp, it's Fridays with Cat. Straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Friday Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. Thank you for listening every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. It's also available the entire show, around the clock, on demand for free at GuyBensonShow.com. That's the podcast. You can also check out FoxNewsPodcast.com or just wherever you get your podcast. We are there. No charge to you. And the happy hour on this Friday and every day, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. It is refreshing. It is also expanding. Four new states this week, and I'm told there's more to come. You can find out where the long drink is sold near you at thelongdrink.com. You can also order online, which is what we do. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. We are getting very close to the weekend. I'm in New Orleans, but I'm heading home tonight. And to help us ease toward the weekend... We welcome back our friend and colleague, Kat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, weeknights at 11 on Fox News Channel, and also co-host of the Tyrus and Tim podcast at foxnewspodcast.com. Kat joins us from our headquarters in New York. Kat, happy Friday to you. Happy Friday to you, Mr. Benson. I want to read you a story that for some reason felt like it was up your alley, and I'd like to get your reaction to it. This was sent to me by a friend. It's a controversy out of Oklahoma. And I will just read to you from this local news account. A Valentine's Day weekend sleepover party for tween girls that included watching the film Titanic turned bizarre and tearful after parents say Oklahoma 5th Congressional District candidate Abby Broyles, a Democrat, allegedly became drunk and berated some of the children in attendance. The party, held at the home of a Deer Creek Public Schools parent on February 11th, included eight girls between the ages of 12 and 13. That's a handful. Eight of them in that age range. Broyles was allegedly at the home the night of the party, at the invitation of the homeowner, who is the mother of one of the children. According, Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But according to multiple accounts of the evening, Broyles, so this is the Democratic candidate for Congress out there, became intoxicated and spoke derogatorily to some of the girls. She allegedly called one girl, quote, an acne effer which prompted the girl to leave the room in tears. Broyles allegedly called another girl a Hispanic effer and another a judgy effer. At one point, Broyles allegedly vomited into a laundry basket and onto one of the girl's shoes. Mm. So uh, just your overall take on this, Kat Timpf, and what is your overall analysis, thinking back to your 12, 13 middle school year range, like, what is the proper protocol for adults to deal with girls that age? Because they can be difficult, but this seems perhaps like a wrong-headed approach by uh, this this lovely woman running for office. Right. I feel like there's no protocol in place for an incident like this because I think this might be the only time this has ever happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, look, I'm not a political strategist, okay? I'm not. But if I if I were, I would say that you should not, when you're running for office— get completely plastered and emotionally abuse tween girls and throw up on their belongings. I feel like that would be step one, but you wouldn't even need (laughs) to tell people that because, I mean, on the one hand, this is a story that you can read, that anyone can read, because, again, I don't think this has ever happened, that pretty much anyone can read and say, oh, I 
don't have to be embarrassed about anything I've done when I'm drinking. Right. Like I in that sense, it's a feel good story. But then on the other hand, you know, she emotionally abused impressionable tween girls, which is like the worst time being like a 12 and 13 year old girl. uh, It's like the worst time of your life. You've never been uglier. You already know that. And you don't need a drunk lady to tell you that and then throw up on your stuff. Yeah, because she was, I guess, talking about one's acne, one's race. Yes. And then I guess one for just being judgy. And I mean, in fairness, 12 to 13 year old girls are that. Yes, yes? they are. They are. But-, but we don't need the F word. We don't need that. And by the way, here's another detail from the story that I find somewhat entertaining. This, I guess, started to percolate and people started to hear about this incident based on text messages. The homeowner outlined and apologized for Broyles' actions. I feel like it should be Broyles who's apologizing for her actions, not the homeowner. But this was in a series of text messages where I guess it was documented what she allegedly did. And then in a phone conversation with a local news outlet, the homeowner confirmed that Broyles caused an incident, quote, of magnitude (laughs) at her home. I I love that phrasing. (laughs) I would say that calling that an incident of magnitude is completely fair, honestly. I I like – and she needed – she felt the need to apologize because although it wasn't her doing this – like, it was that bad where she's like, I'm so sorry that I, I've ha- ever spoken to this person. Like, I'm so sorry that I brought this person into your lives. Because, again, this is insane. Like, like this is completely insane. Like, I've been drunk, okay? I've never been drunk where I'm like, you know what? I want to emotionally some abuse someone else's tween. Like, I don't, like, there's something off there with you when you're sober, if that's where things go for you when you're drunk. Now, the candidate in question, the Democrat running for office out there, is denying all of it. Yeah. So she was asked if she was even at the home where this happened, and she said no. Although I guess there are also some photos photos of her at the house and some TikTok videos of her at the house, but she claims she wasn't there. Yeah, she, she might not, quote. to be fair, she may not remember being there. <laughs> <That is laughs> she true. may not. She's like on another planet. Yeah, I was on she Mars may not that recall. Night. She said, quote, I don't want to talk about it. I don't doubt that. No, I, I mean, this is either. ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Uh, that's that also this is becoming true. a thing. This didn't happen, she said. So she says later in the interview, I'm running for office. You don't think this is a political attack? You don't think this is something cooked up? Asked if she meant that 12- and 13-year-old girls had cooked up a story against her for political reasons, (laughs) Royal said she meant their moms. Then she said, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just telling you it's not true, and if I were a journalist, I would not be doing a story because it's not a story. No, Um, it's a story. The story has everything. It's got politics. It's got trash. uh, You know, like you could see this on like – like, even this is like, no, actually, that's not true. This is crazier than anything you'd see on Bravo. You yes. know what I mean? She needs yeah, to Yeah, the producers would be like, yeah. you know what, Housewives, cut, cut. Ex- Let's uh, tone it down. That's, that's, the, that's the thing is she should own it. And then maybe Andy Cohen gives her a call because, like, honestly, like, this, this is unparalleled in terms of drunken behavior, right? She could like, just be like, listen, listen, if I'm willing to fight 12-year-old girls this hard, imagine yes. what I'll do to the Republicans. Well, th- the thing is, it's like, even like the housewives, like, they'll say insane things to each other, get drunk, do crazy stuff, like flip tables, throw wine. They don't go after kids. And, and then she, they don't say it didn't happen. She would, well, she, like, okay, so there's this girl who went to my, who went to my college, she used to have the saying, if you don't remember it, it never happened. Not true. Because it did, and, like, consequences can endure. She may not remember. 
Like, she may not remember that this oh, happened. Oh, I think she remembers. But this I, reporter, she... I read this article, and it's, like, very well documented. There's, like, photos. There's, like, multiple text messages about the incident from yeah, multiple they quoted, different here, people. So they quoted, Kat, they quoted a 12-year-old. Yeah. And so let's, uh, let's quote the 12-year-old here. It really did just happen, says the 12-year-old. <laughs> it was like a switch. She started being rude to people. Early in the evening, she had been nice. The party <laughs> attendee said Broyles seemed to be angry at everyone there. We were all just sitting around, and she was going around in a circle saying rude things that would end with effer, saying <laughs> F you to, to all of us there, really rude things. She called one friend an acne effer, oh. and she ran upstairs crying. Oh. The attendee said she eventually became the target herself of Broyles' pronouncements. She was telling me I wasn't going to be as successful as her, the 12-year-old said. When the girl, while the girl said she was offended at Broyles' remarks, she said she chose not to respond because she was scared of what Broyles might say to her. Yeah. So it would appear very much that you have mothers, daughters, photographs, videos, all corroborating that this happened, but this candidate, this Democratic candidate for Congress in Oklahoma, is insistent that they're all a bunch of liars, it's a political hit job on her, and she wasn't even at the House. Yeah, and this isn't, how is this a political hit job? Like, you know, like, it, this is one of those things where it is so bizarre that, like, you couldn't make it up. Like, you know, like, if you were going to make up a hit job, you would think of something more plausible. Like, this could only be reality. And then when the reporter asked her, is there any way to prove you're out of town, which obviously is incredibly easy to do when you go out of town, incredibly easy to do. She hung up the phone. <laughs> so obviously she can't because she was there ab- like emotionally abusing young girls in a drunken stupor. They interviewed one of the mothers and told her that Broyles, the candidate, was now denying everything. And her response was this. I find it grotesque. She was 100% there. These children were 100% abused by her verbally and emotionally. The fact that she is trying to hide it or act like it is no big deal is disgusting, particularly for someone in her position who tries to present herself as pro-woman. That's the other wonderful thing about this. She's like this champion for women's rights. She's, you know, all about womanhood, but not really so much these these young women, apparently. I always say this, though. Like, those women who are will never shut up about what a hero they are for women. Mm. You have to beware of them. Because honestly, like, it's just like something you should just do, you know? Like, it's something that you should just... I'm not saying you can never say anything about it, but if you make that your thing, it's clearly you have a reason to believe that people might not believe that you are, and you're angling for something. Yeah, it's a little, um, like, overly preemptively defensive in some ways. Yes, like, right? like I had were... I had a, a friend who broke up with her boyfriend. This was years ago because, like, he came home at, like, 5 in the morning, and then he said, I did not cheat on you <laughs> yeah, that's <pretty laughs> when he opened the door. She's like, okay. Like, it's kind of like that. Right. It's like, I'm sorry. I was just going to say good morning. <laughs> yeah, but what, exactly. What's this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I did not cheat on you. Like, okay. Yeah, good story. One quick soundbite here, totally separate story. I just want to get your reaction. Joy Behar on The View uh, has a thought about what she might be doing maybe for the rest of her life. Cut 13. If I go on the subway, uh-huh. if I go in a bus, if I go into the theater, if I go into, um, where else would I a go? A crowded spot. A crowded yeah. place. Okay. I would wear a mask. And I might do that indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Because why do I need a flu or a cold even? Right. That's and true. so I'm listening to myself right now. I sort of, li- I mean, I don't think it's 100% safe yet. 
All right, so she's listening to herself. Uh, uh, I, how is, is everyone lovely. just sitting there? How is everyone just sitting there? Because for me, when she claims, like, when I go on the subway, you don't go on the subway. And I'm like, there's no way it could get more ridiculous yeah, than that. And then she goes, point. when I go on the bus. Yeah, you're not on the bus, You're Joy. not riding the bus, When was the Joy last Bay time you were on any bus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love, like, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, totally get that. Like, none of these women are riding the bus. And they're just like, oh, yeah, totally get, totally get the move to mask up on the bus. <laughs> you're never on the, you're not on the bus. You will yeah. never be on a bus again for as long as you live. And it's now, been a long time since you've been on a bus. And she's been on the planet for quite a while. She's yep. getting up there, and that's fine. And if she feels like she's listening to her body or whatever and decides that it's not safe to not wear a mask, look, I have my own viewpoint on that, but it's also her decision and totally. her life. And if that's what she wants to do, especially as someone who's probably, you know, who's at higher risk and more vulnerable from disease, fine. Like, go for it. I just don't know how people make the logical leap. I don't get it. Why you go from, I want to do this for these reasons, to everyone should do the same thing for my reasons. Completely agree. Like, if she wants to wear a mask, she and anyone else who wants to wear a mask, go ahead, wear a mask. Totally should be up to the individual. Just please do not insult me by expecting me to believe that you ride the bus. Yeah, that's. I think that you really are homing in on this particular nugget of BS yes. from that story. It's like, Joy, with all due respect, you 100% have a limo from your front yeah. door to ABC Studios every day. You're not, like, hopping on the four train. Right. Or whatever train it would be. I don't, I don't know which trains go where and where the ABC Studios are. But that is, I think, a bit much. But you know what? She's trying to make a point. Go for it. Knock it's yourself out. It's disrespectful to say, hey, I ride the bus. No, you don't. You don't ride the bus, Joy Behar, ever. So, you know. Maybe it's like a really nice, bougie shuttle bus from the wedding to a wedding reception. Yeah, it's reception. a Tesla. It's a sh- <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I don't, I'm not buying it. I, 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 she's not on the bus. She's not on the subway. She's not on the bus. There's no way. It's been, it, I, don't, I think it's been since before COVID that she was on a bus. Oh, it might be. Like, since before either of us was born. Truly. Since she's ridden a bus. Truly. She's been, like, pretty famous for a long time. Exactly. Okay, we've now said bus many more times than I expected to say on the show today. So let's break. When we come back with Kat Timpf, one more question, one very different subject. We will get her hot take, maybe ice cold take, as a matter of fact. There's a clue. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Fridays with Kat. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back with Kat Timp on the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on this Friday. Last question, and I ask you this as an expert because you were, if I'm not mistaken, Tanya Harding for yes. Halloween, yes. right? So you're clearly someone who's into figure skating and, and all of it. I have not been watching the Olympics because of, like, the Chinese genocide. Same. But did you read about or hear about this massive controversy with this Russian skater and the doping and the failed test, but they let her skate anyway. And, and then she, she had an emotional up. meltdown. Yeah. And yeah. the coach went off on her and like Johnny Weir on NBC was translating in real time from Russian and she's like abusing. I feel like this Russian coach might want to move to Oklahoma and run for Congress because berating a teenage girl is what she's also very good at. Yeah, evidently. she's just doing it like, you know, volunt- like freelance. She could probably make it her full-time job. Yeah, although she was sober when she was doing it and was on television Yeah, when she was doing it. I just feel like 
there's a very bitter taste about this entire Olympics. Uh, yeah, I agree. Mind. I completely agree with that. And it was really sad to see. I mean, I saw, you know, like the news coverage of it. I also haven't been uh, watching the Olympics or did not watch the Olympics because of the, the genocide, the aforementioned genocide. Would you typically watch the Olympics? Um, I might like turn it on. Yeah. Like I might, I mean, I'm not like into it. I'm not like party at my place Olympics. Right. But you wouldn't right? avoid it. Right. Exactly. But it's sad. It's really, I mean, that's a 15 year, that's a child. Yeah. And I, I understand because I know one of our athletes, I guess, was disqualified in the summer Olympics because yep. she failed a marijuana test. Which by which the way, not... it's not a performance enhancing drug. Exactly. It's a performance inhibiting drug. Yes. And yet this Russian girl tested positive for a substance that was performance enhancing more than one, I believe, and they just decided, oh, they're going to let her skate anyway because she's a minor and the adults pumped her full of this stuff, which I don't know what incentives that would sort yeah. of encourage <laughs> moving forward. Right, exactly. And then under the huge controversy and all the double standards and people complaining, saying that she shouldn't be there, and the Russians, by the way, can't even compete under the official Russian banner because the Russian Olympic team generally has been suspended because of doping. I just don't know why we keep allowing them to do this, but she was able to compete. She was, I guess, I read, a favorite to win a medal. Yep. And then she cracked under the pressure and was screamed at on international television by her Russian coach. I mean, it's just like abuse on top of abuse at these Olympics. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was really absolutely sad. Absolutely sad, for sure. Well, what a fun conversation we've had here today. We've talked mostly about the abuse of teenage girls and young like adolescence. Absolutely, but I can't of, uh, wait to keep following this Oklahoma lady and see how things go for her in the race because <laughs> she, boy, oh boy. Yeah, I feel like the attack ads are being made already. And I think just hanging up the phone when asked, can you prove that you were out of town? That's not convincing. Literally, me, especially you know, now. There's, right, like these days, there's either, like there's going to be, you can, there'll be some sort of receipt, right? Like that, that, like that's, if you're out of town for the weekend, there's some receipt somewhere. Especially if you're running for office. And exactly. You're off meeting people or fundraising. I, I think the truth is she's not going to have the receipts nope, because the, because the receipts prove real. where she was. <laughs> yeah. She was vomiting in some the shoes receipts and screaming are at some The receipts the vomit on a child's shoe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Cat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld tonight and every week night, 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. You can catch her podcast with Tyrus as well. That's at foxnewspodcast.com. Cat, have a wonderful weekend. I'll you see you, too. I think, up in New York very soon. Absolutely. Fabulous. It's the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour on this Friday. We'll be Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Earlier on the program today, we caught up with Dagan McDowell. Fox Business Anchor. She's also a business correspondent for Fox News Channel. She appears every morning on Mornings with Maria on FBN, and I joined her yesterday in the 5 p.m. hour on FBN. So she hit us back on the radio side today. Here's part of our wide-ranging conversation. I thought this was really interesting. Did you see the New York Times op-ed from Steve Ratner, former Obama economic advisor, really in a pointed way calling out President Biden for his spin, really, that it's the supply chain crisis that is at fault for this massive 40-year high rise in inflation. Ratner's arguing that's not true. You've got to stop saying it over and over again. That's basically the gist of, again, an Obama advisor in the pages of the New York Times calling out Joe Biden. Yeah, I think that if my memory serves that 
Steve Ratner actually used the word dishonest. And, and it's true to blame uh, – you don't get 40-year high inflation just from a supply chain crisis. You have the kind of twofold problem where you had uh, unnecessary government spending – particularly in the last year that stimulated demand at a time when supplies were tight and the supply chain was recovering, but then also just the reckless monetary stimulus coming from the Federal Reserve. And the fiscal spending from the government and the monetary policy from the Fed, they go hand in hand because the the debt spending from the Biden administration, it was the Fed that's been sopping up that debt by expanding its balance sheet up to almost $9 trillion. They have been, the central bank, buying up the debt that the Biden administration or the federal government was issuing. So they, they, they are part and parcel. And so now Biden is you know, he's going to focus on inflation in the State of the Union. He is going to talk – he has already been talking about, like, the kind of, I feel your pain uh, that you would hear from <laughs> Bill Clinton. That I, I rem, You know, I remember when I used to drive automobiles, that kind of I, – I, I know what it's like to pay, pay a lot of money at the gas pump, but talking about it is way different than actually walking that talk and doing something about it. And I – like, the, Jen Psaki was just asked – uh, what are you going to do about inflation? Are you going to waive the gas tax? And her pat response is, everything is still on the table. But just waiving the gasoline, the federal gasoline tax, that actually goes to pay for, goes into the highway trust fund. That won't do anything. That, but gasoline prices in this country and, and internationally have in part been juiced sent higher because of the Biden administration's policies on energy. They have done everything in their power mm -hmm. to take a hammer, a hatchet, a chainsaw to our energy independence and our energy economy. Uh, we're not producing as much oil as we were uh, a few years ago, pre-pandemic levels. We were, the United States was the swing producer, meaning that we controlled, because we had the most excess production capacity in the world, the United States had control over the global price of oil. And we were the swing producer. We don't have that anymore. Like we're not – We the Biden administration has sent the signal to fossil fuel producers. Again, Biden over and over again blames evil meat and evil oil right. for Big the inflation. Meat. Big, Big oil. Meat. Yeah, it's always that. And, it's, and, never, and, it's never their right. fault. Right. So he – and there was actually a really great article that uh, James Freeman wrote in the – Wall Street Journal. It was an. Uh, he noted that there was a piece in the Washington Post. If I sound funny, it's because I'm bending over to pick it up off my floor. Um, that <laughs> Thank it was you for a, that color commentary. Yes. Well, I, as, you know, um, I have. That's actually how I prep. I have all of my research on the floor in in piles of oh. like. Here's inflation. Here oh, is yeah. crime. Here is uh, Ukraine. Here is I've Russia. Done that. Um, so James Freeman notes that there was an article that was in the Washington Post where there was testimony that was going to be um, delivered at the uh, in front of Congress, and the economists at the White House Council of Economic Advisors raised, raised objections to the idea that a spike in prices was due to corporate power. So even they economists know that. What's coming out of the mouths of Biden and his cronies 
is not true and oh, it's is nonsense. not wise. No, it's it's ridiculous. Right. And, oh yes, all of a sudden these these corporations have decided all at once to engage in this price gouging that they weren't doing previously, but they all got greedy at the same time. I mean, no one believes that. And you have the party, and we mentioned this yesterday with uh, Congressman Scalise, who was on the show, played in the clip of Chuck Schumer over on the Senate side, basically saying, oh, we can't just complain about inflation, which is what the Republicans do. We need solutions, and we Democrats have solutions. I'm like, I, I would love to see what those solutions are, because a few weeks ago you were trying to spend $5 trillion more dollars in new spending in the middle of all this inflation. My full interview with Dagan McDowell available online as part of the free podcast. That's every day on demand, no charge to you, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's a very special quasi-holiday in America, and it is very near and dear to the heart of one producer, Christine. We will tell you about that, also give you a couple updates on a few stories that we've been following. That is straight ahead on The home stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on a Friday. Oh, good vibes. From New Orleans, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. Just a few minutes together until the weekend, and we're going to have some fun as we try to do this segment every day. Starting with producer Christine, I feel like this is probably a date circled on your calendar every year today is national wine drinking day it is a whole day dedicated to mama's juice it happens to be a friday do you have plans this evening to celebrate this national holiday that was seemingly invented for you and people like you you know what is so strange i was just telling dan about it this week i don't know what happened once i got covid but i really haven't been drinking um maybe a couple glasses of something on a, you know, Saturday night, like a Cosmo or two. But, um, yeah, maybe I'm going to get back on the uh, wagon here and start drinking some wine tonight. Well, I mean, it is National Wine Drinking Day, so I can't imagine why you wouldn't. I mean, it seems like this is a day that has been created by someone with your type of imagination. This is like the day of your dreams, and it's a weekend. I know. This is exciting stuff. I think I, I think I will probably partake. I'll see if Bobby would like to join me. We do have some a little bit of celebrating to do tonight. So. Okay, so that was going to be my next question. Can we raise a glass tonight to something specific? I know that you had a big milestone approaching or a big sort of a development potentially coming down the pike on your house selling process. Yes, we were waiting for the last piece of the puzzle, which was the appraisal. It needed to appraise, our house needed to appraise at a certain amount in order for us to get the full offer of um, our last, you know, potential buyer. So yesterday, the appraisal not only came back, but came out back much higher than what we actually needed it. So we, I think we're almost done. I think wow. we're just waiting on some paperwork, and then we're going to set a closing date, which should probably be early April. And I think we're really moving. Wow. So the closing is now, what, weeks away, it sounds like. Do you have an apartment? Weeks away. Do you have an apartment lined up yet? We do not. We do not. So I, feel like I don't know. That seems important. Yeah, I know. We're, we're getting there. The, our lawyer said just wait. He was just worried because once 
you put the deposit down on uh, the apartments that one that we want, you only have like three days to, you know, God forbid something happened, you know, to pull out. So we were just waiting. But luckily, the apartment building that we're planning on moving into just opened a whole second phase. So I think we'll be. Right, there'll be wide fine. availability. Right. And if not, I just figured, I think, I believe you have a third floor. So maybe. Oh, just, no, that's know, that's taken. That's family, taken. That's Adam's just, office. You know. Yeah, sorry, sorry. We could help maybe for a day or two. Plus, I mean, that's so far away from Megan's school. You know, I, I think it's probably for the best that you can maybe. Oh explore. no, no, they can they can go stay somewhere else. I mean, I'll come down there. Oh, just you personally. So Bobby and your daughter <laughs> would live in New Jersey. You would come down to us. Yeah, that makes sense. Is it the same apartment complex that you had showed me? Yes. Okay. Oh, it's so nice like that's like bobby and i were just like staring at it again last night because we just the pool and everything is just so nice so we're very very excited to spend the summer sounds like the ron paul gif it's happening right is what i'm hearing from you about selling the house and the last check mark has been ticked in the box so i guess almost full congratulations and you do have something to celebrate on national drinking wine day for me i had national drinking wine night yesterday because we went to dinner at one of my favorite restaurants, not just in New Orleans, in the country. And this was my third visit to this place, Christine. And I know that you were, like, very curious about it. We got off the air yesterday. Oh. And usually you're like, oh, you know, good show. I thought this interview was good. Here's what we've got lined up for tomorrow. What do we want to do in terms of guests? The first thing you said to me was, what restaurant are you going to? What's the name of the restaurant? Because I knew you wanted to Google it and sort of peruse the menu so is your interest peaked? Is your curious Christine curiosity at a 10? Oh, 100%. Because you, when you were ending the show yesterday, you were saying, or maybe you said this off air to me, that you said that when you go back, meaning last night, if the meal was as good as you remembered or as you know it was before, you were going to put this on your top five restaurants of all time. And I know, I know you've been to some of, if not probably the best restaurants ever. Yeah, I'm so a big foodie. And so, stuff. no, it's, it's definitely high praise coming from me if I think it's one of the top five restaurants in the country. And I can confirm that Pesh, which is P-E-C-H-E, Pesh in New Orleans, is formally on the list now. Because I've had lunch there once and now two dinners over the course of maybe six years. Every time I come to New Orleans now, I make sure that I get to Pesh. And not only have I never had a bad dish at Pesh, I've never had a dish that I would call mediocre. Like every single thing I have ever ordered and consumed at this restaurant has been very good to exceptionally good. And last night was no exception to that rule. We had a few cocktails. It was a fun group. A buddy of mine from college, Colin, his wife couldn't make it, which was sort of a bummer. And then Mary Catherine Ham and her husband and their newborn also came along. So it was technically a table for five, but it was really four adults. And we had a nice leisurely two-hour dinner, and it was just absolutely fantastic. Some cocktails, a little bit of wine. They specialize, as you might have guessed from the name, in seafood. We didn't get exclusively seafood, but it was a seafood-heavy order, that's for sure. And... I can't even get into all the details of why it's so good. I would just say two dishes in particular stand out, and I've had these two dishes every time that I've been there. 
One is a homemade pasta with like a bolognese sauce, but it's shrimp, but it's it's ground oh. shrimp. And that might not sound what? terribly appetizing. It's like ground beef, right, or ground bison, but it's it's shrimp meat, if you will, ground into a meat sauce, which is this really rich, absolutely delicious Italian sauce over this homemade pasta. And it doesn't taste overly shrimpy or overly fishy, but there's definitely a seafood hint. And we got two orders of that for the table because we knew that one just was not going to suffice. So we had two orders of that. And I have to admit, I came very close to waving the waitress over and ordering a third because it was so good and we, we needed more. But we decided, no, we'll do dessert instead. The other thing, and this is what always like, surprises me. I don't know why I get surprised every time. But it is not the type of thing that I typically go for. I try when I'm being good to sort of minimize carbs and not do a ton of breads and pastas. Obviously, that went out the window last night at Pesh. They have an appetizer. I think they call it a snack. That is just called fried bread with sea salt. And I'm telling you that if I showed up at a restaurant and saw that on a menu, I would not order it. I just wouldn't. But the first time I was there years ago with Colin, who introduced me to this place, he's like, we have to get the fried bread. Let me describe to you what this dish is. It comes in a little bowl, and there's maybe six or seven. You know the donut holes that Dunkin' Donuts does, the munchkins? Yes. Okay. Picture that, but deep fried, very warm, like fresh out of the fryer, so hot, perfectly salted with sea salt, and... It's savory. It's not sweet at all. That is, like, problematically delicious, and they go so fast. Like, we ended up getting, Christine, four orders of the fried bread No. for the table. We got two to start, which was probably a dozen of these things, three each. And then about halfway through the meal, Steve, Mary Catherine's husband, says, would you guys want some more of that bread stuff? And we all looked around. We're like, yeah. So he called the waitress over. He's like, you know what? Can we do two more of those? And the thing is, they're great on their own, but they're especially great if you sort of break it in half. You can use it to sop up the various sauces that come with the other dishes as well. And honestly, like, I could just rave about this place. I know New Orleans is chock full of absolutely famous restaurants. Commander's, Brennan's, the place that I went on Wednesday, Pascal's. There's a whole list of them that have great history and amazing food. We went to a party late last night that had beignets from Café du Monde, which is very famous here. This place is known for its food and its drink and its partying, and we're leading up to Mardi Gras. We saw all the floats ready in a parking lot to start doing the parade stuff for Mardi Gras. I'm getting out of here, I suppose, at just the wrong time, or maybe the right time, depending on how you look at it. But, like, Mardi Gras season is upon us. The city is known for its partying, and its cuisine, and I'm just saying, as a non-New Orleans expert by any stretch, I would come back here, even if my dear friend and his wife and family didn't live down here, and I didn't have a reason like, you know, a work thing or a speech like I did this week, I would come down to New Orleans for the purpose of eating at Pesh. And that's how good I think it is, and it would be number one on my depth chart of any restaurant I've been to in the South, with the one exception maybe being Husk in Nashville and Charleston. That is an amazing restaurant as well, but Pesh might slightly edge it out. They're, they're neck and neck, 
But those would be two of my top five in the country. You've got to get down here and try it, Christine. Um, I have a question for you. Is it one of these types of restaurants um, that, like, oh, what's that one? The French Laundry. Is it impossible, impossible to get in? Did you get in because you're Guy Benson? No, no, you can get in. And that's the other thing. I should have mentioned this. It's not insanely expensive. Like, with all of the courses, we ordered a ton of food. We got dessert. We had cocktails. We had wine. It was about $100 a person, including tip, which, again, is not cheap by any stretch, but it is very affordable given how good it is. That also factors into my equation of why I love it this much. So anyway, it's Pesh, P-E-C-H-E. They're not paying me. It's not a sponsor. I wish they could be, but it's one of my favorite spots in the country, and we had such a fun time there last night, and I'll have to come back. In the meantime, we are bidding farewell to New Orleans, getting off the air here, heading to the airport, heading home. I'll be back here on Monday from New York City Fox News headquarters. It's the Guy Benson Show. Have a fabulous weekend. We will talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.